So like Bailey said, Henry and I do the weekly Seven Stage LSAT podcast. If you haven't listened to it before, I recommend it. We have a lot of fun recording it. There's a lot of good content on there. And this is the first time we are recording the podcast live. Yeah, exciting stuff. It kind of just feels like the Seven Stage webinar, but with us instead. Well, that is what this is, the Seven Stage webinar, but with us instead. So I'm excited. We're going to be talking about some LR questions today. One LR concept that we find to be especially helpful when you're trying to improve. But I do want to mention we have podcast episodes ranging from study tips, how to get started, all the different sections of the test. We just wrapped up a series going over specific LR questions. So wherever you are on your LSAT journey, the Seven Stage LSAT podcast is here to help. So cool. With that out of the way, Henry, what are we talking about today? Good stuff. Well, we are going to be talking about keywords or modifiers, a very common idea on the LSAT. So when we're doing logical reasoning on the LSAT, I think we spend a lot of time with logic. I mean, that makes sense. It's part of the name, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. That's what you guys pay me for. We spend a lot of time understanding logic, sufficient assumption, necessary assumption, and learning basic logical principles. That is very good, but of course, it's only one half of the battle when we are taking when we're taking the test. The other half of the battle, and what the LSAT is really probably testing for when they're looking at future lawyers, is they're testing for your ability to read precisely and comprehend the meaning of the words on page. So the other part of that battle, then, is to really focus on making sure that whatever you're reading is actually what is being said. That sounds, I know that sounds super simple, right? Like people hearing this might be like, well, duh, I have to understand what's being said. But if you go back to the questions that you've missed on practice tests or drills or problem sets, sections, whatever it is, ask yourself how many of those questions you missed because, oh, I didn't read it carefully enough. Or, oh, I just missed that word. Or, oh, if I had just read it a little bit better, I would have gotten it right. That's a story I hear from my students almost every single day, right? I look at their wrong answer journals and it's just, I should have read better. So if this feels like a very elementary skill for you, it most likely isn't, right? Like something that is probably costing you points on this test is the fact that you are not reading closely. So I just wanted to throw that tidbit in there before we kept going on this topic. Yeah, I mean, and also, too, it's not really anyone's personal failure to, you know, throw any person in front of a reading comprehension section on the LSAT. I guarantee you they're not going to ace it, right? No one's going to be acing it because when we grow up, we, we learn shorthand. We learn to skip over things and really look for a couple important elements instead of grasping every single possible detail. Unfortunately, on the LSAT, that's what they want you to do because, you know, in the future, you're going to be in law school. You're going to be reading a bunch of case law, and it will be important to really understand what the judge is trying to say. So before that, though, you're going to be taking the LSAT. And so what you need to do is understand what the LSAT is trying to say. Now, that's very obvious in reading comprehension. It's the name of the game. But it's still the same idea in logical reasoning. We want to make sure, again, that the words we're reading are what the authors are intending to say. If I say something like, if dogs are hungry and need food, therefore you should feed all of your furniture kibble, most people would think, yeah, that's not a very persuasive argument. Why? Because, you know, your sofa, your your furniture, it's not the same thing as dogs. <laughs> You're saying that all dogs need food. I've got a question for you. I saw this example that you wrote it down, like on our show notes. If I say that dogs are hungry and need food, therefore you should feed all of your furniture kibble. Where did that come from? Henry, like, why is that the example that came to yeah, mind? Yeah, to be honest, I was, I was like looking at my, I've got a dog named Hammer. He's a small miniature golden doodle. And he was laying on it. He was laying on the sofa. So I was thinking, you know, how can I incorporate, you know, my dog and my life into, into this podcast? And there it is. And I was thinking, you know, what would be something very obviously wrong, right? If I say that dogs need food, oh, conclusion, feed your furniture kibble. 
That's obviously wrong. I don't think many people, even a person who hasn't been studying the LSAT, is going to understand that, yeah, hey, look, dogs and furniture, not the same thing. But if I were to say something like pediatricians need to have the ability to communicate diagnoses to parents and children, therefore physicians need to know how to speak to children in a way they can understand, then why that may or may not be wrong becomes a little less clear. It's not so obvious. Of course, it's making the same or it's making the same error that the furniture to dog error we made. Physicians and pediatricians are not the same thing. Pediatricians are a subset of physicians. So it's not the case that all physicians need to know how to speak to children. Those little term shifts happen all the time on this test, especially on the harder problems, I feel like. It tends to be the case that I feel like those one to three star problems, after you start getting a good grasp on logic, those just go very easily because they make the objects and the subjects of the sentence very, very clear. It gets a lot harder once you start pushing up on those four and five star questions. And there's only so much difficulty you can spin a sufficient assumption and necessary assumption into, right? <laughs> like if A, then B can only be so hard. So what they try to do is they try to confuse you on what the A's are and what the B's are. That's their goal. And what we need to be able to do is to be on the lookout for those little shifts in term, right? The, the distinction between pediatrician and physicians in order to unpair ourselves from making these assumptions that they want us to make. It's really because they're trying to fool us. They're trying, but they won't succeed. I mean, like what I'm hearing you say is that when you're studying for the LSAT, you want to focus on logic. You want to focus on your understanding of that stuff. But just as important as your understanding of logic is your ability to read and read precisely. Right. And so a couple of ways that we can work to kind of improve that skill, get better at it, start slow. Right. When you're reading things, especially when you first start studying, there's this tendency to breeze through every single word you read, skim over everything so you can go as fast as you can because the time pressure is real. Right. You've only got 35 minutes if you're working on standard time to do this test. I get it. But when you're first starting out, start slowly and slowly build your way to read faster so that you're not compromising on preciseness. Now, make sure you're always looking out for keywords, modifiers. I call them categories, right? That idea of dogs versus furniture or physicians versus pediatrician. Those categories show up on LR. They show up on RC. They show up all the time on this test. And your ability to differentiate between these small changes in groups, right? The tiniest little things is going to be really, really important, right? If they change the phrasing from coffee to black coffee, if they change the phrasing from university to... I don't know, all school. Those little things are really, really important to look out for. And you'll notice, especially like Henry said on those curve breaker questions, a lot of what you're missing isn't even just I didn't read carefully enough or I missed a word. No, you probably missed the category changing or the term shifting. And that's why you got the question wrong. So any closing notes on that before we jump into some questions, Henry? Yeah, just to add, it's really just the principle measured twice, cut once. It's the same idea where you really want to be very careful up front. It's far better to go slower and read the stimulus in its entirety than it is to fly through it, get to the answer choices, realize you don't really know what's happening, and then having to go back. So what we're really talking about is investing your time in making sure you're actually doing the problem being asked of you. And yeah, it's... Nothing else to say about that. Should we take a look at some examples, potentially? Let's do it. So Henry and I have picked out a couple of questions here from P265 that I think does a good job of exemplifying the topic that we're talking about. All right. 
let's go through this question. Walk me through it, Henry. Okay, interesting. So we've got this travel industry consultant. I guess we should talk about what question type we're, we're looking at. Yeah, you jumped the gun there. Yeah, I know, you know. But, but, but the important thing about this is it's really relevant to all question types. Your ability to read precisely, it's not just for sufficient assumption. It's not just for necessary assumption. It's for every single question type because every single question type, they're going to have problems that come up with, the, with these keywords. And so, you know, maybe I'm just getting excited because I'm looking for the keywords here. Maybe it's just because I, I have the copy here and it didn't say and it didn't and it didn't say to read the question type i don't know one of those two we're looking at a weakening question right very simply we're trying to weaken this argument we're trying to make it a little bit worse let's see what the argument is yeah so the travel industry consultant says several airlines are increasing elbow room and leg room in business class okay interesting because surveys show that business travelers value additional space more than say better meals okay i mean you know i agree with that who's really dying over the airplane food Okay, it's all about that space. Do you fly business class? Like, what do you? You know, I've got I got miles. You know, I've got that. You know, venture. Do you really venture? You know, venture X card, travel card. But airlines are over concerned about the comfort of passengers flying on business. They should focus on the comfort of leisure travelers because those travelers purchase eighty percent of all airline tickets. Okay, what's going on here? Yeah, so what's going on here? So we have this observed phenomenon where these, these airlines, they're increasing the elbow room, and they're listening to what their business class people want. They want more elbow room. They want more room on their plane. They don't really care about the food. And so these airlines are serving them. Now, this travel industry consultant says, hey, look, airlines, you're messing up, right? You're messing up. Why? Because guess what? 80% of all airline tickets are not in business class. They're actually, I, I guess it would be instead focus on the, the cover leisure travelers, whatever that I was about to say economy. Yeah, I guess it'd be leisure travelers. It's a very, it's like a euphemism right there, I guess. Leisure traveler. Well, I guess like business versus for fun. I guess that's true. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. This is definitely an old question. Regardless, 80% of all airline tickets are purchased by not business class people, but economy, right? But the important thing to notice here is what group of people or what group of things they're talking about. They're not talking about the profit share. They're not saying 80% of revenue comes from leisure travelers. They're saying 80% of all airline tickets are leisure travelers. Those are two completely different things. And they phrase it in a way over here to try to get you to conflate those things, to try to make it seem like, oh, 80% of all airline tickets means 80% of all profits. But that's not what it says, right? You have to take everything the argument says at face value. And it's a very subtle way that they try to use these terms and change them around or be a little bit confusing with them to trip you up. And this is an example of a one-star question that does this, right? It only gets more confusing from here. But if you can identify that change there, right, then try to conflate profit versus the amount of tickets being sold, you're well on your way to doing well in this section. Yeah. So, so the, sh the shift here is really the difference between tickets sold versus money earned. Because in this case, sure, the airline, they're catering to the needs of only 20% of the tickets. But we don't know what percentage of you know revenue that 20% makes up. How much money do they extract from business class consumers? And so when we're looking at this, that is the gap, right? That's our distinction that we're looking for. And to be honest, when I first saw this problem, this is the kind of thing where ideally we would get you to a point where this just jumps immediately into your mind. When you're looking at and when you've become, I don't want to say adepted enough, but when you become familiar enough with this test to the point where you're just already anticipating this gap and already anticipating that they're going to try and do a term shift, it becomes a lot easier to pick up. And you don't even have to really give a whole lot of these answer choices a, a fair shake because you already know what you're looking for. So you're already hunting. 
And for the sake of time, let's just go ahead and look at the right answer for this question and see if it does what we thought it was going to do. So answer choice D. A far greater proportion of an airline's revenues is derived from business travelers than from leisure travelers. Exactly. Right. Henry, do you feel like this matches what you were thinking? Yeah, this matches exactly the initial concern here, which was just to wonder like, okay, well, how much does the business class make? And and what D says is actually the business class, they make a lot more money for the airlines. So of course, you're going to be concerned with the the clients and the customers who who make you the most money. In this case, it's it's business class over <laughs> these leisure travelers. I have never heard this term before, leisure travelers. Which makes sense. Yeah, I hadn't either, but I just assumed the opposite of business travel was just, I don't know, traveling for fun, for yeah. leisure. Let's take a look at the next question here. So this one's a little bit harder, or it's meant to be a little bit harder. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We'll see. But I'll go ahead and read this one out loud. So which one of the following is an assumption required? We know it's a necessary assumption question. But again, like Henry mentioned, that's not as important for the skill that we're trying to gather here. So let's see if there are any terms, categories that we should be concerned with. Educator. Reducing class sizes in our school district would require hiring more teachers. Okay, so to have smaller classes, more teachers. Makes sense. However, there is already a shortage of qualified teachers in the region. Although students receive more individualized instruction when classes are smaller, so students get better instruction, smaller classes, education suffers when teachers are unqualified. Makes sense. Bad teachers, bad instruction. Therefore, reducing class sizes in our district would probably not improve overall student achievement. So there's a couple of things in this argument that I am immediately noticing that I'm like not a fan of. But the biggest one is this. Qualified teachers in the region is very, very different from qualified teachers. End of sentence. Right? They are specifying that. And anytime you notice that in an LR argument where something is more specific than it needs to be, you should be paying attention. Now, qualified teachers in the region may or may not end up being important to the right answer. For this question, it is. But in general, if you're able to pick up on these subtleties, the little things that make these arguments different, you're going to be able to answer those curve breaker questions a lot more accurately than you were before. Because this is what they do. They do this all the time. Because they're, you know, they're trying to confuse you. That's the goal. So when you're looking at this, if you aren't, if there aren't like alarms ringing in your head when you see qualified teachers in the region, now there should be. So anything else about this argument that stands out to you, Henry? Yeah, I, I would definitely say on first pass, the shortage of qualified teachers in the region, kind of what you were saying, this, it's very specific, a little too specific for me, and just too specific for my LSAT alarm bells, where, I mean, they could have just ended it, there's a shortage of qualified teachers, but they say qualified teachers in the regions really limiting this to being like, okay, it's not like there's a general shortage of qualified teachers in the world. It's this precise place. Now, why would they do that? Why would they say that? It's very likely that they're trying to make you think that there's a shortage of qualified teachers everywhere. Well, actually, the better way to put it is maybe, <laughs> maybe there's a shortage of qualified teachers everywhere. We don't actually know. We just know that there's a shortage of qualified teachers in the region. The other thing just to be aware of, too, that I would be looking out for here is a slightly different note, which is when they say, although students receive more individualized instruction, when classes are smaller, education suffers when teachers are underqualified. The other thing I would just be aware of here is how much does education suffer when teachers are underqualified versus what's the benefit of students receiving more individualized instruction? It's possible that, yeah, maybe you have you know, an unqualified teacher like Henry, but if the class sizes are very small, the teachers get a lot more benefit from that. So that would be the other thing I'm paying attention for. Spot on, right? Like if you are trying to compare two things, they both might be bad, but which one's worse? We don't know. 
There's no way for us to say that reducing class sizes isn't actually going to improve overall student achievement. And now this is a necessary assumption question. I think somebody in the chat asked, what level is this question? Henry, am I mistaken in saying it's a five-star question? Yeah, I, I believe it's five-star here. I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a five-star question. Not 100% positive, but it's it's meant to be a tough question, right? Because when we're looking at the right answer, answer choice E, qualified teachers could not be persuaded to relocate in significant numbers to the educator's region to take teaching jobs. Well, that's a necessary assumption because we know we have a shortage of qualified teachers in this region. But if we could get teachers from across the street or, I don't know, like across the state to move over into this region, we no longer have a shortage of qualified teachers, right? We've been able to bring other instructors in. And that is a very, very subtle, you know, assumption that they're relying on you missing because you didn't notice literally this one word, just the word region. That's it. Very classic case where, you know, the educator believes they're unable to get good teachers because there are no qualified teachers in the region. Well, maybe you could just hire them from, you know, the neighboring state. And in order to make this argument work we with E, we have to say, well, actually, qualified teachers can't move to this state for whatever reason. So, so again, just another example, not like with the logical mechanics of this question, but just how even a simple two-letter word, the simple two words at the two end. Two-letter? Two-letter word. I don't know. What, I don't know. Region, what I'm the two-letter word. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? You know, a simple two words at the end of a, a statement can, can really make a world of difference here. Yeah, it's a super hard question. Let's move on to number three. Henry, you want to take this one? Yeah. Final question. Flaw question. Because our club recruited the best volleyball players in the city, we will have the best team in the city, right? So, okay. So this club, they got the best volleyball players. They're going to have the best team. Good for them. Moreover, since the best team in the city will most likely will be the team most likely to win the city championship, our club will almost certainly be city champions this year. I like the confidence. I like the confidence here. They believe in themselves, and I can respect that. Does that mean they're going to win, though? I don't know. Yeah. All right. Does that mean they're going to win? Well, uh, apparently the author thinks they will, right? It's In fact, they very strongly believe this. They say that the club will almost, almost certainly, certainly be the champions this year. So what is the problem here, right? That's the question. Because on first pass, it doesn't look that awful. If you're reading this quickly, you could quickly see, or if you're reading this quickly, it might appear as though this argument is good. Guess what? You know, the best team is most likely to win. Our team is the best team. So we're, we're definitely going to win, right? Well, there is a subtle shift, and it's super subtle, which is why this is a five-star question. But the question would be like, what would it mean for someone to be most likely to win? If I were to say... I had a race, Asta, right? In person A, he's got a 40% chance to win. Person B, he's got a 30% chance. Person C also has a 30% chance. Who is most likely to win? Person A, I think was the one you said who had the 40% chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Person A, right? Because person A's chance at winning is better than person C's, better than person B's by 10%. But if you were to bet on person A winning versus them not winning, who would you bet on? You would bet on them not winning. Why? Because there's only a 40% chance they win versus a 60% chance someone else wins. Now, we don't know who that someone else is, but it's more likely they're going to lose. Well, let's take a look at what they say in the stimulus here. They say that the best team in the city will be the team most likely to win. So all this means is that they're more likely than every other team to win. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a very good chance they're going to win, right? What if there's, you know, thousands of teams <laughs> in this tournament? I mean, that'd be a crazy volleyball. I don't know how volleyball works. I'm not very tall. 
I mean, I think it's just like any other tournament, like a bracket system, probably. Yeah, lots of people. Well, if you think about, I mean, March Madness, right? You know, there's the one seed. In theory, they're the most likely to win. But how often does the one seed win? Someone, pull, someone, pull that up. Bailey, pull that up. How often does the one seed win? <laughs> I bet you it's it's not very often because the odds are actually very stacked against them. Similarly here, when they say that the volleyball team is the most likely to win, sure, maybe it's like a 15% chance better than any other team, but that's still only a 15% chance. Exactly. And they're concluding we're almost certainly going to be city champions. Like that's in my head, almost certainly is a 99% chance of winning. Right. That is super, super high. Yeah. If they were really, really mean, they would make this question something like our club has, you know, a 50 percent plus one chance of winning or something like that. Right. <laughs> they, they, or, or, you know, our club. If is they the, were good at the LSAT, that's what they'd say. Yeah. If they said our club will be, you know, city champions more often than not, that would be a, that would be like a seven star problem. But in <laughs> any case, when, when you identify this and you realize like, OK, most likely to win doesn't mean most certainly to win. What you get is something like problem or answer choice E which says concludes that because an event is most likely, it's the most likely of a set of possible events. So w- what are they talking about? The event where the, the volleyball club wins, that event is more likely to occur than not. Oh, that's where they're saying like, hey, it's more likely they're going to be city champions than not. Yeah, so super tough. Yeah, but it all came down to that key term shift, right? Or that category switch. We went from talking about the most likely possibility to the almost certain possibility, right? Over here, we went from talking about, you know, qualified teachers versus unqualified teachers and qualified teachers in the region. And then over here, they try to switch us up by talking about the total amount of tickets sold versus the actual profit or revenue. But even though these were all three different types of questions, they all came down to the exact same thing. Can you read precisely? Were you able to notice these subtle changes in categories or terms to get to the right answer. So hopefully that kind of gives you guys some insight on one more tool that you can use when you're going through logical reasoning questions to be more efficient, to attack them a little bit better, and just get more points. Because that's what we're here for at the end of the day. Get more points. Road to 180. So cool. That brings us to the end of our explanation portion. So we're going to move into the Q&A portion of this. I guess we're doing Q&A now. Now, Kyla has a question about the last problem. I'd totally be open to, if you want to pull that up, Asta. Yeah. Was it B and C? Yeah. Can we talk about how to weed out B and C, not for the airplane problem, yeah, for the, the other problem? All right, so Kyla, yeah. So B says, predicts the success of an entity on the basis of features that are not relevant to the quality of that entity. Or So what is this entity they're going to be talking about here? Ah, this entity is the volleyball team. So it's predicting the success of the volleyball team on the basis of features that are not relevant to the quality of that entity. Well, what do they predict success on? The quality of their volleyball players. Yeah, the quality of their volleyball players and how good of a team they are. In fact, they say that they're the best team and they've got the best volleyball players. Now, if I guess if you were to be a very like make no assumptions kind of person, right? <laughs> make absolutely no consumptions. You might be inclined to say like, oh, well, I have to assume that having the best volleyball players is relevant to the quality of a volleyball team. I think that's fair. <laughs> I think you could make that assumption. Yeah, I think that's a fair assumption. So when you're looking at something like B, you have to ask yourself, well, what entity are they talking about? It's the volleyball team. And what are the features they describe, the volleyball players, and how good of a team they are? Now, that seems fairly relevant to the, the quality of the, the volleyball team. Something like C, which has predicts the outcome of a competition merely on the basis of a comparison between the parties in that competition, I would just be inclined to say that this is not a flaw (laughs) because this is more or less how predictions work. You know, when you're predicting who's going to win the, you know, the Miami Heat or the Celtics, 
what do you base your predictions on if not the comparison of the Miami Heat and the Celtics? And so in in this case, one, they really don't do too much prediction with the outside parties. I guess you could say if, if you consider yourself to be the best team in the city, you are comparing yourself to other teams, but you're comparing it in a very relevant way. Namely, are you a better volleyball team than the other ones? I was just going to throw in really quickly, something I always ask myself when it comes to flaw questions is one, is this something the argument does? And two, is this something that makes the argument worse? Right. And with answer choice C, is that something the argument does? Maybe. Right. I could see the reasoning of why you would think that. Does it make the argument worse? I don't think so. Right. Like, I don't think that's actually an issue with what's going on in the argument here. Yeah. A lot of these flaw questions are some of the harder ones. Sometimes it can help to take a step back and ask yourself, like, is this actually problematic? Right. Is it is it actually problematic to predict who's going to win based on how good the participants are? But it's a very tricky question. Right. And a lot of what makes something like E very hard to see is this idea that the event is more likely than not to occur. What does that apply to? Oh, it's the, the club being almost certainly the fact that the club will almost certainly be champions at the end of the year. Rohit asked in the chat really quick about answer choice D, since we're on the topic, we might as well just talk about it. Presumes without providing a warrant that if an entity is the best among its competitors, that each individual part of that entity must also be the best. So we're not presuming because the team is the best, each member is the best. They're just telling us each member is the best, right? Like that's not the reason we're assuming that's true. We are just told we handpicked the best players and therefore we have the best team. So answer choice D is kind of getting the logic of the argument backwards. Do you agree, Henry? Yeah, it's exactly what I would say, right? When they say D, that if an entity is the best among the competitors, then each individual part of that entity must also be the best. Well, what actually happened here? What they they did is they started with the individual parts of the entity, the players. They said that the the players are the best. And, And then they concluded that their team is the best. Now, maybe you are or are not allowed to do that. If you say that, you know, maybe there's some sort of team cohesion thing going on, you might be inclined to pick something that, well, no, but like, really, you might be inclined to pick an answer choice that said, like, you're presuming just because something is composed of the best that it will be the best. That being said, that's not what D is attempting to convey, right? D is conveying like, hey, or or what D would convey is that the argument somehow said, man, because our volleyball players, our volleyball team is the best, it must be the case that every individual player is also quite good. What about the bench warmers, right? It's like Asta and the tutoring staff. Come on now. Oh, let's relax. I (laughs) I run the tutoring staff. Let's calm down. Yeah, yeah. But cool. Hopefully that explains that last question there. So we we can go ahead and start with the general Q&A. All right. Kyla. Hi, Asta and Henry. I'm a huge fan. So thank you for having us on. That's very sweet. Um, (laughs) Tune in every every Monday when new podcast drops but uh, <laughs> oh that's so sweet general general question for you guys would you always recommend reading the question before starting to read the stimulus yeah like the question stem you're saying yeah yeah and just having a sense of like oh i'm supposed to be looking for a flaw or i'm supposed to be looking for the main point stuff like that yeah so i want to talk about this really quickly there are some different schools of thought when it comes to that i think there are some like popular prep resources that recommend not reading the question stem first i am a firm believer in reading the question stem first because yeah sure you're looking at the stimulus with a filtered view but that's like the whole point right like to find what you're trying to find so i don't think you gain anything by looking at the stimulus with fresh eyes and not knowing what you're supposed to be paying attention to and paying attention to all of it i just don't think it's very efficient i think you gain a lot by reading the question stem first 
Do you agree, Henry? Yeah. I mean, honestly, is it really going to be the difference between you getting your goal score and not? Probably not. A lot of it is just going to be, what do you like to do? So what I would say is, if, if you haven't tried it, maybe try reading the question first. See if you like it. If you don't like it, you can read the stimulus first. Whenever someone asks me that, I tend to say, like, look, it's probably not going to be the main factor between your 180 and your 160. A lot of it is just going to end up being preference, right? Personal preference. Maybe there's some marginal benefit either way. I read the questions first personally. Uh, not today, obviously. But yeah. I, <laughs> you sound like a liar. I know. Well, I, I am one. So yeah. Does that answer your question? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. All right. I think Maxime was next. Sure. Yeah, I'll go next. Thanks. Yeah. I find that I keep making just dumb mistakes on time sections. And then as soon as I go to a blind review, like within like a couple of seconds, I'm like, wow, that's what the mistake was. I know what it is now. So what do you guys recommend for us closing the gap between time sections and blind review up until the June test? I feel very strongly about this. So I'm going to take this one first too, Henry. There's no such thing as a dumb mistake on this test. One of my biggest pet peeves when it comes to my students' wrong answer journals is them saying, stupid mistake, won't happen again. Oh, I misread it by accident, won't happen again. No, if you missed a question, something went wrong. Some part of your thought process, some step along the way, you went off track. So the first thing I'd recommend is to stop calling it a dumb mistake because it's not. You're smart. You're very smart. You're studying for this test. Instead, really force yourself to analyze what part of your thought process actually went wrong. Did I not understand this concept clearly? Was I not looking out for keywords like we talked about today? Did I skim through this portion of the passage because I didn't understand it, so I wanted to move on, right? Actually get down to the root of what the issue is instead of writing it off as, oh, well, if I just read more closely, I'll do better. I really want to kind of force you to, like, I'm being mean about this because it's something I see so often and it's so easily fixable. Just force yourself to really understand what was the mistake you made instead of giving yourself that kind of get out of jail free card. Oh, I just made a silly little mistake. I don't know, Henry, thoughts? Yeah, 100%. It's kind of a cop out. Really, if you want to enhance, like, how do you make your mistakes most meaningful, right? How can you convert those mistakes into points? The way you're going to do that is not by calling them dumb, but, but really asking yourself again, why did I miss this? Is it because I'm not looking out for modifiers or keywords? Okay, you can work with that. Is it because I keep confusing sufficient and necessary? Again, you can work with that. And those are things you can drill out. And the other tip I would say is don't try to fix every single quote unquote dumb mistake. If you, ha- if you identify like, hey, I really have been messing up my necessary assumption questions or my weakened questions, the next time you do a section of LR, really commit yourself to focusing on the weakening question, the weakening questions of the section. And then obviously still do well or do the best you can on every single other question, but devote extra energy to not making that same mistake. That's what I would say. A lot of it is, is going to be self-reflection on what actually went wrong. If you keep, you know, glancing over words, maybe you should just slow down a little bit, slow down. And if you run into time troubles, so be it, you can address that down the line. One of the best pieces of advice I've heard about trying to improve your score when there's a discrepancy between timed and untimed, every time you go into doing a timed section, a timed drill, a PT, whatever it is, there should be one to three things that you are specifically focusing on improving, right? Before you go into it, you should be able to articulate, I am trying to do better at weekend questions. I am trying to do better at identifying author's tone, right? If you don't go into every single timed practice that you do with purpose, I don't know, maybe this is harsh, but you might as well not do it, right? You really want to make sure you're focusing on improving on something specific every time you go into practice. So that was a very strong tone answer. I don't know why I got so passionate about that, but does that answer your question? Yeah, that was perfect. That's what I needed. Of course. Good luck. 
All right, I think Labrina was next. Hey, yes, thanks. I really loved that the podcast today was more error-based than like question-type based. And so I was just wondering for logical reasoning, what are some of the most common mistakes or errors that you see people making for the like four and five star questions, thinking about patterns I could be paying attention to? Yeah. Where to begin? There's a lot of there's a lot of things to be on the lookout for. And, and honestly, maybe that could be another like podcast slash Q&A we could do. Comparative statements. Classic. Probably the most typical one. I mean, if you've been to my classes, you know, I am just such a on top of the comparative statements because they come up all the time. Oh, you know, drinking water increases your likelihood of, I don't know, drowning or is more likely to increase your likelihood of drowning than something else. Well, does that mean you actually have a very high risk? That was not a good example. <laughs> that, that was not a, a great example. example. <laughs> uh, the, the classic one is like, you know, Henry's taller than Dave. Does that mean Henry's tall? No, I could be I could be very short. I'm not, but I could be very short. Similarly, Dave could also be very tall. I could also be very tall, right? When you have a comparative statement, you can't draw absolute values from it. So I would say that's a very common one. Other common ones is, I get this all the time where people, there's numbers on a problem and all of a sudden people whip out their calculator and they start doing math and, and things <laughs> yeah. like They don't actually whip out their calculator, right? But they start doing algebra. Now, anytime you see math or numbers on this test, just realize that you are actually not required to do any math. Try to look at what the numbers are attempting to convey, right? So if, you know, if they say like the price is $18 in year one, $22 a year two, $27 in year three, really what they're trying to convey is that the price is increasing. They're, they don't want you to write down all of these numbers and try to you know, make some sort of average between them all. What they're trying to say there is the price is increasing. So being on the lookout for that. Beyond that, you know, there's a bunch of other very small things, the distinction. The one thing that I would throw in there is whenever you see the word causes, A causes B. No, it doesn't. A never causes B. Nothing ever causes anything on this test. If you see one thing causes the other, most of the time, 99% of the time, it's going to be wrong. It's going to be something else causes that. That's the one thing that I'm always telling my students to look out for. If something causes something else on the LSAT, no, it doesn't. It never will. Look for something else. Yeah, I guess the other, if we're, now, I must add that I feel like that's a heuristic. And what, what's going to end up happening is is going to go and find the, the single problem where the right answer says A causes B. That always happens. I'm sorry. But as I'm a general sorry. rule of thumb, that I think that's a, a good good idea. The, the other rule of thumb is whenever you see many, just replace it with two. That's what I tell my clients. It, it, that will get you so far. One of the most common things that the LSAT tries to throw at you is that they'll say, oh, there are many, many people who drink tea. Well, what's many, right? You know, 10? Not for me. Two. Two is many. Or for anyone. It's, it's a matter of opinion. So, so whenever you see many, it just means that there exists some. Just replace it with two. It, it will make the, the problem a lot easier. Those are some. I hope those work. All right. Christina, I think you're next. Hi. Thank you. Hey. So my question is more, a little bit more general, how to approach the LR section. I'm reaching a point in my setting where the first 15 questions kind of go swoosh by and I get them right but I start to get really fatigued towards the end to the point where like I'm spending like five minutes straight in a question and I still get it wrong and regardless of whether or not it's like a four star or five star like how do you have any suggestions on how to combat that fatigue that you get like when your LR section is the last one on a four section test like how do I remain clear-headed for these harder questions towards the end that's a great question. Well, first of all, great job on the first 15 questions. With all my clients, I always say you got to work on those first 15. Those really should be going by quickly. The last 10 are going to be harder. 
right? They're going to require a lot more mental energy. One thing I, I heard you say, oh, five minutes will go by. That should, in my opinion, now that's, again, that's an opinion, that should almost never be the case. If you realize that it's been about two minutes, it's time to skip that problem. And people always say like, oh man, well, I've narrowed it down between two. I feel like I've just wasted so much time. You really haven't. When I approach this test with a client, I say like, look, our goal here is not to make it so you get every single question right. Our goal is to make it so your accuracy, like the average accuracy on every question you have is very high. So even if you move, if you're taking a look at a question and you narrow it down between two, you've actually gained hypothetical points on this, right? You've moved from a 20% chance to a 50% chance. So that can sometimes help people like get away from this block they have for moving on. Like, hey, man, if you were able to narrow it down, you've actually gained points on average. So that's great. Beyond that, a lot of it one can only make LR so exciting. Okay, it's not exactly the most riveting stuff. And it, part of this is, is really just going to, sometimes it's just recognizing like, hey, this section, it's not going to be exactly enthralling. Yet nevertheless, if you get to question 15, you've only got 10 left. I know you, Christina. Oh you can get those you 10 done. This. You can get those 10 done. <laughs> Right. So taking one sentence at a time, very helpful. Making sure you're not glancing over two sentences. I do this all the time. You read a stimulus, you realize you didn't really read it at all. You got to read it again. And then all of a sudden, you know, your, your mind's wherever. And just slow down a little bit. Know that you have a lot of time to get these done. Beyond that, coffee. I mean, the only thing. <laughs> yeah, coffee. I had my roommate when she studied for the test, she would drink a fit aid, like one of those energy drink things before she took a PT every time and was just wired for the rest of the afternoon. But it worked for her. She did well. So maybe that. But the only other thing I would say is be very, very proactive when it comes to skipping. I am very trigger happy when it comes to skipping on this test, especially with LR. By the time I get to question 25, I've probably skipped about half of the questions on the test or on that section, which maybe is more extreme than most people need. Yeah, the second something one of my previous clients actually said that I very much resonated with was I was watching her do an LR section and she like said out loud, she was like, this is disturbing my peace. I'm moving on. And I was like, that's so real. Like, oh, my God, protect your peace when it comes to this test. The second a question is like stressing me out, I don't know what the answer is, I don't know where to go, I am protecting my peace and I'm moving on. And nine times out of 10, when I come back to that question later, I get it right. Like it's just a matter of getting myself out of that hole that I'm digging and moving on. So Henry said two minutes. Oh my God. If I reach a point, even if it's only been a minute that I'm working on this question and I just don't know what the next step is, I am jumping ship. I am moving on to the next one. I'm going to grab all the points that I can. And then at the end of the section, I'm going to come back. Now that meant that when I finished an LR section, my round one, I had like 15, 12-ish minutes left in the section, right? Like I had nearly all of the time left towards the end because I just skipped, skipped, skipped all of it. So that is my advice. I agree with everything Henry said, but most importantly, protect your peace. Yeah. And you'll I, I guess one more thing I'll add to is, is if you look at this test as some terrible thing, it, you're not going to want to do it. And when I was studying, one of the approaches I took was like, no, this is an opportunity to like crush everyone else. And I would get really, really excited to take a section. But I'm being serious, right? It's like, this is an opportunity to really just dominate and punish this test. And I, would, I don't know, I'd like listen to some music to get my adrenaline up. It's a little bit silly, but even little things like that can really get you going. Maybe make it a little bit more exciting. So, you know, a little catchphrase. I would look in the mirror to stare in the mirror say some things to myself that I won't repeat. But yeah, but <laughs> before I took a section and then before I took the actual test, it, it definitely helped me get in the mode of like, okay, this is not like some terrible thing that's happening to me. I'm happening to this test. In any case, Anna. Let's move on. Yeah, Anna. Hi, thank you for having us. Of course. Going off 
of what you guys just said about skipping that was going to be my question like if you're stomped on one thing and you kind of see time going by like I know you said your thoughts on skipping and stuff but what's your thoughts on like coming back and like continuously go like moving forward getting these questions right the ones out of the way and then going back and rereading the other ones like how do I go about that there's one way that I do it so I'll throw that out there and then Henry is probably going to give a much more sophisticated answer because when it comes to LR, I really just am doing my best and it, it worked out towards the end, but there's no rhyme or reason to this. But what worked for me, at least when I was doing LR, when I did my first attempt to the question, I would leave breadcrumbs for myself. And what I mean by that is I would highlight keywords in the argument that were interesting to me. So for example, the question that we did today, I would highlight the word region, right? I was like, I don't know if this is going to be helpful, but that's weird. So I'm going to highlight it. Any answer choices I eliminated, I would highlight a word or two in that answer choice as to why I eliminated that answer choice. If there's an answer choice I was unsure about, I would highlight the word that made me unsure about that answer choice. So that when I came back to that question for round two, I'm not having to start over on the question. I've left myself this kind of like visual note taking system, essentially, of what I was thinking in round one. And it helps me go a lot faster. And at that point, right, I have a much more clear head. I have had some time away from this question. I've processed it a little bit. So usually I find myself moving through it a lot better. Now, if there's just a fundamental misunderstanding of the content or that question is just really tricky, that question was just not meant for you, which is okay. There will be questions that are not meant for you. You might just miss it anyways. But that's generally my approach when I'm coming back for round two. Thoughts, Henry? Yeah. The only thing I would add and just to tie it in is generally speaking, I imagine most of the people who are here right now, they're, they're pretty familiar with the test. They are pretty familiar with logic. If you're reading a stimulus and it doesn't seem like anything's wrong with the argument, I'm almost, and what I tell my clients, it's like, try to pretend that there probably isn't anything wrong with the argument you're reading. The problem is you're just reading the wrong argument. Again, going back to the keywords, right? If something doesn't look, if something looks good, you know it can't be. It's on the LSAT, right? They're not going to put a perfect argument at you. So, so what ends up happening is after you skip and you go back to the question, try to come at it from a perspective of like, okay, where are the points that could be weak here, right? Are they saying black coffee instead of coffee when they've been talking about coffee this entire time? Little elements like that. Be on the lookout for those keywords. That's generally a good time, right? Is when you, you skip, you think that nothing seems too terrible with the argument. Keywords, 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 or category words, modifiers. Yeah, really, it, it's really hard to depending. It, it, a lot of it's going to depend on, on which question type, right? If, if it was sufficient assumption, I would say you just start at the start of the conclusion and work your way back. It would depend on the question type. But yeah, when you skip and you go back, just know that <laughs> it's probably... It, one, it's a hard question, but you're also very smart. So it's probably hard because, again, you're probably doing the wrong question right now. You have to figure out what they're trying to say. I, I know that might not be the most compelling answer. Oh, well, I guess it was a great way of putting it, but... I thought it was a good way of putting it. Like, you're probably reading the wrong argument. I think that's solid. What's up? Awesome. All right. I'm over on the West Coast, so I'm nice and fresh here. So Love that, Rio. <laughs> Let me just bring this to you with five minutes left. So, I mean, on the LG section... We just, I, I really appreciate all the tips on the LR and, you know, the skipping philosophy there. But when you're doing the games, at what point do you stop skipping questions and just move to the next game and like how to manage your time with the four in mind, especially for that fatigue, yeah. like knowing that you're gonna be really fatigued for the hard question at the end or the hard game. Henry, do you have any initial thoughts? Yeah. So one, I, I'm hearing you say skipping questions. If you skip one question, that's fine. Might just be a hard question. If you skip two questions, that means something went, went wrong in the master game board. Something went wrong in the setup. 
and that means you skip the entire the entire question then that would be my uh, the entire game right you you would go to if it was game one you'd go to game two hopefully it's not game one that would probably be my biggest piece of advice in terms of skipping if you've been to my lg class right i'm a big believer in having a really strong master game board when you have a good master game board these questions are not particularly difficult right because we've, we've front loaded all of the work up front you know double double front there the other thing i'll add in terms of fatigue and this is actually true of lr too is sometimes people will will say i have a lot of difficulty on passage four or game four or the final questions of an lr and then i'll look at the timing on the questions and i'll see there's gonna it's way too much time it's being spent up front something if you get a simple sequencing game on game one by the end of that sequencing game i want to see a three on on your timer right i i want to see three three one or three zero no no i okay maybe maybe not but but close to that i really am a believer that these these one star two star sequencing games they need to not take that much time the reason why is because or for me at least is because i'm not particularly smart i don't really know what's going on i need as much time as possible on these harder questions in order to get them right and so my strategy going in was like, man, I got to make these sequencing games like breathing. I got to make these one, two star grouping games like breathing, these in and out games like breathing. That way, when I get to game three, game four, I have so much time that it's not even a, a matter of fatigue. Right? I wanted to be able to like take a nap in between game three and game four and still have extra time to check my answer choices. What I would recommend for games is, is don't just say, man, I'm getting these one star games done and I'm getting them all right. I should move on to just focusing on the hard games. Really, and this is something on the target time on 7 Sage, I'm a big believer you really want to be under target time on some of these easier games. I don't know if that answers your question, but a lot of it, or what I hear whenever it's like, oh man, I need more energy for game three, game four. I would prefer that game one doesn't even take any energy from you. Right? So, so still keeping up the focus on that. I think daily logic games practice helps with that too. Like even if you're not planning on studying logic games that day, if you can just wake up and take a logic game, maybe two if you're feeling crazy, and just make it a very consistent habit in your studying. I think it really helps with the fatigue there. So cool. That brings us... I hope that helped. Good luck. That brings us to the end of our webinar here. Thank you for coming out tonight. Check out the 7 Sage LSAT podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And best of luck with your studying, everyone. Have a good night. Bye. For more LSAT study tips, visit 7sage.com. See you next week.